I have a wonderful guest on Church and Culture. He's really one of my oldest friends. Uh, his name is John Clink. He's going to talk about his personal relationship with Cardinal Pell, one that uh, lasted over many years, and John Clink spent time with him shortly before his death. We'll be talking about that. But let me tell you about John. John himself is now President Emeritus of the ICMC. John, what does that stand for? The International Catholic Migration Commission. Yeah, it was founded by Pope Pius VII in 1951 with the staff all over the world. He uh, also was a diplomat for the Holy See at the United Nations, at the Permanent Observer Mission of the Holy See, the United Nations, working closely with Archbishop Renato Martino for 17 uh, UN conferences, including the famed Cairo and Beijing conferences. He also has worked for Catholic Relief Services on the ground around the world. And uh, on top of that, he's a uh, graduate of Georgetown. So, John Clink, welcome to Church and Culture. It's been a, num- a number of years since you were last on. It has, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to hear your voice. Well, you ran off and started living in Italy, so, you know, you're partly to blame. Say, I want to read, to start, I want to read the first few sentences. You have started a a column that you're going to, we're going to get published about Pell. I want to read the first few sentences to our listeners. Here we go. George Cardinal Pell was a colleague and became a dear friend from the time of our meeting in the late 1990s when we both served on the Pontifical Council for the Family. His eminence was extremely approachable with a keen wit and a desire to help the most vulnerable. As a layman on a Vatican Council, I was impressed by this high cleric's openness to establishing personal relationships, not only with all the council members, but the lay consigliere. George Pell was a man's man. While he had been a noted athlete and was offered a contract to play professional rugby, he opted instead to heed his vocational call to the priesthood. He could not be missed in a crowd as at about six feet five inches he towered over almost all. So, this is wonderful that we're, John, that you had such a good, a closer and long-term relationship with Cardinal Pell. And so let's just begin here. The kind of man he was to be with, and you were with him. How did how did Cardinal Pell relate on a personal level? Well, the thing that I find ironic uh, is that many portrayed his eminence as um, aloof and distant and rigid. That on a personal level, he was just a, a fine person to be with. And he he had a, a capacity to reach out to anybody at whatever level. One of the, when we were, after the funeral, there was a private get-together for his family and friends in Rome, and um, his some of his closest collaborators from for over twenty or thirty years were there, and they were describing, for instance, how he would, when he was uh, made the Archbishop of Sydney, uh, before he was even made Cardinal, he was. They were watching these. Um, homeless who were who were trying to come into the building and they said oh well, you, know, you can't come into the building and he said no no they're, they're my guests yes. uh, I've invited them hey and, by the way John uh, I did I did get to visit with Cardinal Peller and Sydney myself and spent an hour what, with him what a great, what a great privilege because I never I never managed to get down there well, there's a golf course near the ch- Chancery. <laughs> that explains uh, it all. <laughs> now, let's let's get right at the heart of the controversy that unfortunately uh, lowered itself onto the shoulders of Cardinal Pell. 
And the way you tell it, and let, let's our listeners may not realize this, but he was brought to the Vatican, you know, from his seat in Australia to look into the Vatican finances. Now, tell us what actually happened then. So, well, to preface it a little bit, um, when he was, he and I were in California, and I had asked him, I had just been elected to be the president of ICMC, International Catholic Migration Commission, and I said, Your Eminence, would you be willing to come on, on my board? And he said, he said, well, I have a question for you. And I said, what's that? And he said, will, will we be able to do some good? And I said, without missing a beat, I said, absolutely. If you come on board, I'm sure we can do some good. And so he said himself, without missing a beat, yes, absolutely. So um, not only did he serve on my board, but then he he gave me the, the gift of all time, which was he said, would you be willing would, would you accept me as your treasurer? And I said, yeah. accept you as my treasurer. I said, that's the most wonderful thing I've heard. So he um, he became the treasurer of ICMC and because he was a, a master at uh, finance, and he had, he had turned the, the Archdiocese of Sydney around completely and had made it amazingly um, uh, profit, well, profitable in the sense that you know, there were no further debts, and he was he was able to really help the poor in his diocese. So, lo and behold, um, once Francis is elected Pope, um, the first person that he turned to was Cardinal Pell and asked him to head up the new Secretariat uh, for the Economy, which was uh, a brand new creation, in order for the Pope to try to make good on the promises he made prior to the uh, to his election to the cardinal electors that he would reform the finances of the Vatican. So um, unfortunately for me, but, but very fortunately for the Church, uh, Cardinal Pell accepted, obviously, immediately, and uh, he had to leave our board uh, because there, there could be no further... Uh, he could not have any other uh, possible conflict, so he went full-time... To be the head of the of the uh, to be the, what they call the prefect of the secretariat for the economy, which made him equivalent to the number thir- three person in the Vatican, the Pope, the Secretary of State, and then Cardinal Pell. Wait a minute, John. I want to remind our listeners that I am talking to you, John Clink, who spent many years as a working for the Holy Seal at the UN before you became president of the ICCM and began working with Cardinal Pell. So keep continue from there. And so um, the Cardinal was uh, began, amongst other things, uh, putting all of the finances in order, in order that they would be um, according to international standards, and all the accounts would be uh, exactly as as any other state would have, which had not been the case previously. And the Vatican was under serious pressure at the time because they were about to cancel all of their credit, and, and uh, it was it, it looked as if uh, it would no longer be t- able to continue as an international uh, financial entity. And uh, so the Cardinal uh, brought on board some international uh, advisors one man, for instance, was, was French, who was, he was actually still there working. And he managed to, he, he had also hired um, an international auditing firm to be their international auditor, in addition to having hired a, an Italian who, who was very well known in Italy as being very above board. And so he, he started that whole process. Clearly, he was very threatening to many of the people who were associated with the old guard. And, well, by the way, John, um, <clears throat> explain the nature of the threat. What Was there impropriety? He, I, there were 
there were he found, for instance, about one point five billion dollars that had never been put on the books. I mean, he found accounts that amounted to that, to that, and everyone, everyone in the Vatican was going to have to put in uh, through his office their accounts, so that so that the Pope would know exactly who well, this, had what. And, and this was a good. this was a forensic audit then. It, it was forensic as well as ongoing. Yeah, and I mean, once that they had it set up, then it would continue to go. And clearly that threatened um, some of the people in the Vatican, some of the major people in the Vatican. And so, lo and behold, first first thing that happened was that they fired the international auditing firm. There, there, was, a, there was an archbishop at the time who since became Cardinal Betchew, and Cardinal Betchew fired the international auditing firm. He said at the time, that the reason that uh, he was firing them is because they didn't really need them because there was already an auditor that, uh, that Cardinal Pellet hired um, who was the auditor for the Vatican. And so without without even conferring with Cardinal Pellet, they fired the international, Cardinal Betchy fired the international auditing firm. And then about a month later, he fired the the, the auditor. And in the meantime, also, um, charges were suddenly found and brought against Cardinal Pell uh, for historical sexual abuse, supposedly, in Australia. But what finally came to be known is that the Victoria Police Department in Australia had formed a Cardinal Pell task force two years prior in order to find any crime that they possibly could put uh, against Cardinal Pell. And so, and, and then then it, then it was discovered eventually that at the same time, $2 million were paid uh, by the Vatican, by Cardinal, by Cardinal Betchew, to, uh, and we don't know exactly to whom it was paid in, in Australia, and those funds, were never accounted for, and they were never received by the Catholic Church. So clearly, there was a lot of there were a lot of behind the, the uh, scenes efforts to get Cardinal Pell out of the Vatican, out of out of the transparency he was trying to create, and put him in in prison. Now, and talking by the way, I'm talking to John John Clink, who is a good friend of Cardinal Pell. Now. Tell us, sort of step by step, what happened after these charges were filed, obviously to remove Pell from the Vatican. So, one of the things was this: this task force was set up in in the um, district of Victoria uh, of the police department just to, just to entrap him, and. Um, they even put advertisements in the local newspapers asking if anybody knew of any anything wow. against Cardinal Pell, and they but they they were very frustrated because they they still couldn't find anybody who was credible. In the end, they came up with with some uh, absurd charge that he had he had uh, abused a choir choir boy or an altar boy in the cathedral in the in the sacristy at the same time everybody was was milling and frying around and he was in all of his vestments so that was rather hard to to imagine but nevertheless he was found guilty the first time he went on appeal they found and two out of three of the judges found him uh, refused to accept the appeal and he was at this point almost ready to give up, uh, and he was. Was, was he as, was he in jail at this time? Yes, he was in jail. He was in jail for I think four hundred and ten days okay. in solitary confinement. With he was his, in solitary confinement. Yes, with his next door neighbors being terrorists and murderers, and and he was not allowed to say mass. And interestingly, according to the 
Australian justice system, they were not allowed to publish anything about about the trial whatsoever. It, it reminded me of North Korea, and they they said that it was in order to protect him from from I don't know what. And um, in in the end, they, the government even brought charges against I think even against the New York Times for having having did, done a story on on the trial. It was, I mean, it was, it was something really out of this world. And so all of this time, the Cardinal was languishing in, in jail, although Cardinal Pell was not the type to languish. And so what he, what he immediately decided in his spiritual mind was that this was going to be an extended retreat for him, and he began writing a prison journal. And so he wrote three volumes of the prison journal, which are available on Ignatius Press. And uh, interestingly, when Pope Benedict died, um, Archbishop Ganschwein revealed that the last book that uh, Pope Benedict read was the first journal of Cardinal Is that Pell. right? I did not know that. Yeah. So, so okay, so the, keep keep the story going. Cardinal Pell then was, he, he didn't know exactly what to do, you know, he was getting, he was get, becoming very discouraged, and he didn't, and in the meantime, he, he whatever money he's managed to save, and, and accepting donations from, from faithful Catholics, he, he managed to, and he had a, a very excellent Jewish lawyer who, who, um, only charged him about half of what he would normally charge just because he knew that he was innocent. And but nevertheless, it cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions yes. of dollars, to go, to go through this trial. And so he he is putting down everything that he has, everything that he could hope to have in terms of a pension, in order to to fight these ridiculous charges. And by the way, the cardinal could have just stayed in the Vatican and claimed diplomatic privilege, as as Archbishop Marcinkus did many years ago. But he, he said, no, no, he says, I'm innocent, I'm going to fight this. And so, as the, the rugby player that he was, he went and just fought it tooth and nail. But anyway, he's in, he, so after the, the second, uh, after the appeal failed, then he was, he was discouraged and he was speaking to the warden of, of the prison, and it was the warden who said, no, no, your eminence, you have to fight this, you have to keep on going. And so, he, he finally appealed to the High Court, which is the equivalent of our Supreme Court, and uh, it, that is a body of seven, and they voted seven to zero to release him and wow. to expunge all charges against him. Wow. And what was his life like after he was released? What, what did he do? I'm sure you met with him a number of times. He, he just kept... Um, he was never taken back to be the head of the of the uh, dicastery uh, of the of the secretariat for the economy, and I I don't know what that means and and what the Pope was thinking in that regard, but the Pope um, even even recently after um, the car- after the Cardinal's most recent writings were released, which were very critical of. Of this papacy, even after that, the Pope had nothing but good things to say about him. He said that he was he was a fine man, and um, but the Cardinal would he lived a very normal life in Rome. He would go out and uh, he would say masses. He would consecrate um, uh, priests. He would in uh, the week uh, it was either the week or the week before he died. Um, he went and his, he gave his last sermon uh, down at Padre Pio's uh, um, shrine down in in uh, southern Italy, and um, that that therefore was has been published as his last sermon. And uh, in that sermon, he talks about the greatness of, of uh, John the Twenty, John, sorry, John Paul the Second, and Benedict the the Sixteenth. And uh, talks about how you cannot change the doctrine of the church. Your job as pope is to 
be the custodian of of the faith that has been given to you. Now, what what was it he said when he asked how it was serving his jail time? <laughs> so, so uh, about a, six weeks or two months ago, I I went at his at his apartment, and so I said, Eminence, you know, how would you sum up your time in in prison? Because I was suffering just thinking of him being in prison during that time. Right. I was just infuriating so much. And, he, and he, he just looked up at me with a sort of twinkle in his eye and said, oh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> what a man. What a man. Uh, and he he just radiated. And by, and by the way, when he was released, the, the in the prison they have television and everyone was following all of the prisoners were following to see if he would be if you know what the Supreme Court would say and when they when they handed down their verdict the, the entire prison evidently erupted in, in cheers uh, because they, they saw that he was that an innocent man was being released. And he also brought some people into the Catholic faith while in prison, correct? Yes, and I, I, I have not studied the journals um, enough to remember who it was that, that he, he converted, but there were several conversions while he was in, in prison. But unfortunately, during that entire time, he was under mass, saying mass, and I was speaking to his brother, uh, and they were only allowed to visit him, you know, maybe once or twice a month. Wow. And sometimes they would cancel the visits. And I mean, it was, oh, it was, it was an unbelievable um, torture is for some How much of this is, how, John? How much of this is just coming from a deep down anti-Catholicism in Australia? Is that the case? There, there is a very strong Masonic um, element, particularly in the state of Victoria, and that definitely came into play. Now, how that relates back to the Vatican, I mean, there have always been accusations of, of Masonic elements in the Vatican, and, I mean, you know, it, when you're dealing with money, Anything could happen. So, um, right. And the, the cardinal was was the victim of of, and, and there had been there there were uh, threats on on the lives of the people who were working there too. Uh, one of his assistants, I was listening to a, a radio uh, account that he he he's done who, since. By the way, John, cardinal who was passed. that? I may have met him. Who was that? His, his name is Danny Casey. Yeah, I met him. Yeah. And and Danny was his right hand man, and uh, they they bombed a uh, car in front of his apartment. Uh, while, Whoa! While he was sitting. Whoa! Not okay, his car. Okay, wait, wait but a minute. Car. Wait a minute. I, I we've got to take a break. I got to recover from that. Talking with John Clink about Cardinal Pell, who he knew quite well, and the incredible story of his really martyrdom. We'll be back in just a moment. I am back with John Clink, uh, who is President Emeritus of the International Catholic Migration Commission and Pontifical Council for the Family in uh, Rome at the Vatican. He worked many years for Catholic Relief Services as a Vatican diplomat at the UN, working with Archbishop Martino, attended all the important population conferences, such as in Cairo and Beijing. Uh, We're talking about Cardinal Pell, and John was an eyewitness to the man, the work, and and the terrible gauntlet 
that he was sent through by the various forces in the Vatican that didn't want finances being made transparent. But I want to ask you, John, there's such a contrast between the lower court, two out of three denied his appeal, then he goes to the Supreme Court, and it's seven to zero. What is it just that this was this kind of guilty verdict set up from the beginning? Yes. Okay. <laughs> In a word, I mean, that, that's the only conclusion that one can come to, because if, if you look at the facts surrounding the case, um, it, it was an impossibility that he would have, he would have taken out an abuse in a packed um, cathedral, even where they, they said it was in the, the sacristy. The sacristy, if there's an archbishop there, many people around helping him vest, helping him unvest, and it, it, it was just an impossible scenario. And and yet they found him guilty. They were they were looking for the hangman, you know. I mean, the hangman was looking for him, and he was he was the victim of this police police investigation. And the name of their task force. Um, I'm told the Cardinal Pell task force. You know, that's what they were. Okay, so so this cardinal who who led the charge against him, what was his fate? He is uh, he is now facing charges in the Vatican for multiple multiple um, charges, and uh, he of was, what of what kind, John? Uh, uh, I, I I would have to look at, at the exact charges, but there are like ten charges against uh, of a financial nature. You think he'll? Uh, you think he'll ever go to prison? He is. Uh, I I don't know because um, the the Pope has the ultimate jurisdiction on all law. One of the ironies is that this, I mean, and this is so typical of Cardinal Pell. In, regardless of, irrespective of the fact that this was his mortal enemy, not because because Pell wanted him to be an enemy, but because he was the one who engineered all of this behind the scenes against Cardinal Pell. When in in his last uh, statement that was issued after his death, he said that it is unfair that this man is not getting appropriate due process. This Cardinal Betcher is not getting appropriate due process in his legal proceedings in the Vatican. Wow. So he he came to his his um, sworn enemy's defense, uh, at least in so far as the fact that he should be giving he should be getting due process like any other person should get. Do you, do you he think was, he was? Do you think he was a saint, John? Oh, I, in my book, he certainly was. And in fact, well, then, I, when I, when am I, I a saint? A, am I a saint on your book, John? No, no. <laughs> but we'll, we'll Cardinal, get back to that on the on the next segment. <laughs> well, he he. It's looking like that people are going to be be wondering and are presently wondering about that. Now, he issued a final published statement that was released after his death in the British Spectator, correct? Correct. And basically he said that the next conclave will determine... Well, there's two th- There's two things to deal. One is that there was an article published before he died that was that came out just soon before he died. And then, then there was another... That was a spectator article. In addition to that, there was another uh, apocryphal letter that had actually been published and handed around at the time of the last uh, meeting of the Cardinals, um, and but it had, but no, it had no picture on it. And so, and and uh, Sergio Magister, who was a Vatican um, uh, journalist finally revealed right after the Cardinal died, according to him, that was Cardinal Pell's sort of last testament. 
and very gesture about that. But as somebody who knew Cardinal Pell, I can I can just I can hear many of the cardinal words uh, in this in that other statement. But back to your back to the spectator, that the major focus of the spectator article is on the ongoing synod and and how how toxic it is for the church and how it, it, it should not should not even be happening as it is happening as it is as it, as it is um, being rolled out. Well, let me ask you a tough question, John. Not that some of the ones I've already asked aren't tough. They are. Uh, But there was a book that I interviewed the author called The St. Gallen Mafia about a group of cardinals who started meeting regularly at a Swiss town, St. Gallen, to try to engineer the election of a progressive Pope, which they did, Pope Francis. And, you know, my question would be, what keeps that same group, and especially the German cardinals, who are, you know, just sort of waiting to uh, take over, they want to take over, uh, what keeps them from people like this controlling the next conclave? Two words, well... Three words: the Holy Spirit. Okay. But um, I, this was one of the, the major concerns that I spoke to the Cardinal about in our last meeting, because as I expressed to him and he concurred that the next conclave is pivotal for, I mean, in my estimation, for the history of the world, because it is imperative that the Church remain true to its history and its dogma, and that people do not try to change the things that have been given down to us by Christ himself, and um, that's why it's very important for people to read the last writings of of Cardinal Pell, because they really are, they speak to every issue that the Church is facing at the current time, and and he gives what his critique of what's happening and his his proposals for the future, um, and it was uh, my 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 obvious hope that he since he was the most international of cardinals and most, the best known cardinal in the world basically that he would be able to shepherd this you know that he would even though he wasn't of age to vote because he was over eighty he wouldn't have been a, an elector but that given that he knew everyone so well that he would be able to at least have have side conversations with with all of the cardinals, and but as as uh, clearly providence would have it, he isn't going to be at that conclave. But what I find fascinating is that these writings that came out just before he died, and that were revealed that are, that are finally attributed to him, are so clear and so precise that he is speaking to us from the tomb in which he has finally been placed in, in Australia. So is he? Is it like he handed us a game plan? I, I, I mean, I think, it's a, I think it's a spiritual game plan. I think it's a, it, it, it talks about all of the questions that people, so many people are afraid to, to speak about. And the, and the bishop's temerity, and the, the fact that their powers are, are being um, taken away from them through the synod, uh, and he's calling for the for the bishops to to take up their their we call their apostolic oath and you know defend the faith. Did you specifically? Do you have in your mind, John? Some some cardinals that you would like to see move sort of toward the possibility of being nominated uh, for that con- in that conclave. Not, I'm sorry. By the way, I'm sorry really, about the dog. It'll stop in a moment. Not really. The reason I I don't is because my my answer to that is that all 
always all depends on who's who is alive at the moment. And as you know, had it been had it been two weeks ago, I would have hoped that it would be Cardinal Pell. Right, he was, right, he was, right. He, but you know, who knows? And, and and who knows who will be named? And and it is not to say that the people who are who have been named, for instance, by Pope Francis, will necessarily vote according to his mindset. Or or you know, it's it, it's an open question, completely open question. Um, I know that uh, people wiser than myself, such as Edward Penton, has, he wrote a, a book about a year ago uh, proposing, you know, describing who, who should be the candidates. But one of the most important things, I think, is that for whomever the candidates are, you know, whoever the, the, the main cardinals are, that it be clear what... That what the people should understand that the electors should understand who they are, so that there are no surprises, and you know whatever whatever their their history is, it should be known because that's the most important office on earth. Well, isn't it fair to say we didn't know who Pope Francis was? I mean, I certainly didn't. Yeah, and you, and if you didn't, how many people did? Because you keep track of these things. And I and I really still don't. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm still tr- trying to get my head around, you know, because it, 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 my major frustration is, you know, as the Holy Father, I have I have respect absolutely for his office, but it, there seems to be such confusion in many of the thoughts that are expressed that, that I just I just can't get my head around it. How much uh, contact did you have with uh, Pope Benedict? Not, not very much. I, you know, I met him on a, on a couple of occasions, and uh, I. But <laughs> every time I, it reminds me of everybody saying that, that Cardinal Powell was was aloof. Um, Cardinal Benedict was he was just. Um, everybody said that he was so stuck up. I mean, the man was was absolute humility. You know, you you would see him and you would t- talk to him, and and he was he was just kindness. I mean, his kindness personified. Was, that was my experience of him. So so he got such a bad rap as being you know, the German Rottweiler and all this stuff. And he was, I mean, he was very clear in his in his theology. And people are are saying that he is the equivalent of he should be made a doctor of the church. Uh, they're not talking about his, his, him being made a saint quite as quickly as, as John Paul II, but that he should be, in fact, a doctor of the church because of his, his theological... Can you be a doctor of the Proud. church without being a saint? That's a good question. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I, I remember when I mean, you and I... Uh, went as part of a, a United States delegation to which anniversary of John St. John Paul II's papacy was it? It was it was John Paul II's 25th anniversary to his election to the papacy, but, and it was also Mother Teresa's uh, beatification. But you know the reason I thought of that because I was going to ask you: Did you have much contact with St. John Paul II? I, my contact, yeah, I mean, I, I, I met him on many occasions, and um, one of the most, one of the most sort of um, telling moments was as we were about to go, we were as a delegation, we had a private audience with him, and we were about to go off to Beijing, and there were those in in the in the delegation. And outside the delegation, who did not think that the Secretary of State was preparing things appropriately, as they had as appropriately as they had done for Cairo, and so um, just before I, I we had the audience, this friend of mine came up and she said, "Well, John, I just want you to know that I had breakfast this morning with 
the Pope, and he's going to ask you about Beijing huh. and, and <laughs> how, pre- how prepared we are. <laughs> and I'm thinking, thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that? How how did that conversation go, John? So, and he was he was standing next to him was the Secretary of State, who was who actually became a good friend of mine, also Cardinal Sedano. Well, you took and, me to meet you took me to meet him a couple of times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and so so um, so the, the John Paul II said, "So, Mister Clink, what do you think uh, will happen with Beijing, and are we prepared?" And and I said, "Well, Your Holiness, just as." Just as the Secretary of State was absolutely magnificent in preparing for the for the Cairo uh, population conference by by doing X, Y, and Z, and I spelled out exactly what it was that made it successful. I'm sure that that's what they're doing to prepare for this conference, and if they do that, it will be a, a a great success. So I managed to get my point across without criticizing. Well, that, that's why you've been a diplomat. I mean, because you know how to do this, you know. You know, I, I don't have that gift at all. I'm just, like, clumsy. But you, you know how to uh, how to get the message across without offending anybody, right? Well, you see, maybe you, you, your cause should come up for, for canonization. Because... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Now, we've got, you know, 10 minutes left. What, what do you think Car- Cardinal Pell's legacy will be? I mean, for example, have, do you think the impact of these three prison journals and these final writings, do you think they'll, they'll impact the direction, say, of the, how the church is thinking going toward the conclave? Absolutely. And I, I mean, the other day I was introduced, it was, it was right during the day of the funeral, and I was introduced to, um, a retired, uh, cardinal who, uh, and they said that, you know, they introduced me as a friend of Cardinal Pell's, and he just said, oh, he said, I just read his journals all the time, you know. It's a modern-day inspiration uh, that that we have as a model, someone who actually has suffered in prison for the faith and for his his absolute rectitude in in every in every single aspect of his life, and the the cardinals, the bishops, the priests throughout the world are reading his journals. And now they will also be reading his last major uh, works, the, the three articles that he wrote, the, the last sermon he gave, the spectator article, and uh, and the, what they call the Demos article, D-E-M-O-S, which was the pseudonym that was used for the paper that was published and, and, and uh, handed to the cardinals at the last, Consistory. So definitely, I think that he will have a, a major impact going forward, even beyond the grave. And the the impact will be one that he, the kind of impact he called for, and that is uh, holding on to reaffirming and rearticulating the sacred doctrine of the church rather than innovation. And because we, he he's saying that the major role of the Pope is to to enforce unity and to pass on as the custodian of the faith to future generations. And his main his main point is that people, the common man, should not be denied that incredible. Um, history and treasure of the faith that has been passed. So, 
is that we should not become simply an NGO. We have to become the, the, the ones who hand on the faith to the, to the next generation. Do you think that given the direction the church has been pushed, I don't say that it has gone, but has been pushed under Pope Francis, do you think there's enough uh, concern that has been built up that what Cardinal Pell has to say may in fact be hitting a nerve? I, I, I think that he... Um what he was able to do is synthesize in very, very clear and and um, and direct ways, so that he everyone everyone has their own particular concern about the way the church is currently going, and he sort of uh, he had this amazing ability to summarize everything in in a nutshell. I be at he would just summarize all of the major aspects that we've been talking about and and uh, be able to synthesize how we were going to to deal with that going forward um, so in in the, if you look at this at the um, document this, this uh, Danos document he he talks um, very specifically about uh, the next conclave and and what what the, what needs to be uh, done and he says the Pope does not need to be the world's best evangelist nor a political force um, he has a foundational role for unity and doctrine and he must understand that the secret of Christian and Catholic vitality comes from fidelity to the teaching of the Christ and Catholic practices it does not come from adapting to the world or from money. The now have you have you yourself read the journals? I've I've read some of the journals. I haven't read the whole all of the journals. And how powerful are they? They're very powerful because they're coming from someone. I mean, it would, it would remind you from about of reading from Saint John, you know, who was in a cave and on. Um, on an island in, uh, in Greece. I mean, he, he was in a cell and and was able to completely focus and and receive, I think, divine inspiration as he was writing this. And he was converting what 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 would what any normal person would have seen as a condemnation to to a spiritual release. And um, then, as it happened, he was also physically released. But the spiritual release is, is a great testimony to, to for all of us. You know, whatever whatever might befall us, it's generally not going to be as bad as being in prison in solitary confinement. And despite that, despite falling from one of the highest offices in the in, in the face of the earth to being a prisoner without any rights, he was able to maintain his faith and he was able to, to transmit that faith through journals that now are published and can be can be handed on to the next generation. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing inspirational story. Now, as you followed the uh, coverage of his death, how was Cardinal Perel uh, treated? He, well, the 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 one part that I found. Ironic was that people were saying, I mean, it, it, the, the detractors were saying that he um, he should never have spoken against the, the Pope. But the whole the whole point is, and the Pope the Pope himself is the one who always says uh, criticism is a great thing, and he said so even regarding even regarding Cardinal Pell's criticism. He said we all learn from criticism. So I think that that is, is a, if we are all free human beings, the main thing that we are taught is that we have to follow our consciences. And if your conscience is well formed, as, as Cardinal Pell was, he had the absolute obligation to speak his conscience to 
his boss and, and <laughs> the vicar of Christ on earth. And one of the, one of the, the contradictions of the current way of thinking is that the cardinals have not been called in their various consistories. There have been seven consistories, but none of them have been, have been consistories, perhaps the first one, but, but, um, in the last six, none of them have been in, in a forum designed in such a way that their opinions could be asked for and that there could be discussion about, about particular matters. They're, they, they would all break up into, into regional groups. And of course, the regional groups already knew each other, so there was no point in that. The main point is to get the universal church together and come up with a universal point of view. And that is what I hope that Cardinal Pell's legacy will be, is that there will be something to be handed to all of the cardinals so that they can be inspired by his example and, and his, his wisdom. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've been talking with John Clank, who, as you now know, was a good friend of Cardinal Pell and witnessed both the before and after of his martyrdom. And you can very well imagine the, the impact that had on John and how blessed he was to know him. And John, I'm blessed to know you too, and, I, and we're all blessed that you took the time to come on Church and Culture, so thank you. I'm blessed to be asked. <laughs> thank you. Well, so you'll much. be asked again, and it won't be a couple of years down the road. It'll be far sooner. And in closing, I'd just like to recommend the, these last uh, articles. Of, of Just look on uh, Google and check out Cardinal Pell's last come up. I think we all will after hearing you talk about it. And so I want to say thank you again and tell everyone that I'll be back on this day at this time next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.